And uh, without any further ado and without any taking up any more of his time, I'd like to turn it over to him. It's Don G. From California. Thank you, Don. Good evening, everyone. My name is Don. He's an alcoholic. I first should say that I'm extremely impressed with this building. I think you could get everyone in Paducah a room here. Uh, you know, it's enormous. It, I immediately set out to find escape routes wherever I happen to be. Despite the high spiritual plateau on which I reside, I still have a touch of paranoia. And I, and I want to be able to escape in case they close in. This hotel or inn has innumerable exits, none of which you can use. <laughs> Once you're in, you're here. That's just all there is to it. But I, I have enjoyed it. I, I knew I was home right away. I, <laughs> the fellow who picked me up at the airport, I'll protect his anonymity, call him Richard Wallace. Uh, he came in and, you know, there's a parking lot out here that could serve as an emergency landing strip for an L-1011. He had to back his car up twice in order to get under a no parking sign. <laughs> That's my kind of folk. Uh, And I rented a car today. I like to see the area wherever I happen to be. It's one of the advantages of traveling around a little bit. And so I rented a car and traveled around looking at all of the sites here in town. I see your primary industry is, in, is antique stores. But I stopped and read all of the little signs that you have. And the most fascinating one is right outside the building. It was so grand, I, I had to stop and write it down. I'm going to take it home and share it with people. It says that on March 25th, 1864, General E.B. Forrest of the Confederate States of America attacked the Union fort, seized supplies, and burned its wharf. The next day, United States Army troops under Colonel S.G. Hicks <laughs> burned the homes in the area in order to clear it of Confederate forces. Underneath it, it says, presented by the Paducah Hospitality Association. <laughs> hey, <that's> a... <laughs> uh, that kind of warms your heart. Yeah, uh... But it has been a very good meeting. I didn't get a chance to hear Mickey unfortunately, because I was sightseeing, but I, I'm going to get her tape because I asked her what the highlights were, and she said that to do with venereal disease. Uh, I moved over slightly, but... Uh, uh, and, of course, I heard Serenity Sam on Friday night. Uh, we ran him out of Los Angeles quite a few years ago. They gave a roast for him that I wasn't able to attend, but I did send a, a message. It, you know, he calls it taking a geographic, and I explained that in the judiciary we call it flight across straight line, across state lines to avoid prosecution. <laughs> That's really what it was. But if you folks uh, can have Sam down and understand his odd form of humor, then there's no question about it. You're my kind of folk. Uh, other than the accents that uh, we pick up from where we come from, there really isn't that great a difference, it seems to me. Laughter seems to be the music of the heart, and that's what plays best wherever you go. I, I was telling someone over here about, I've been asked to speak in somewhere in Texas once, and a fellow called me the day before. He said, you're all set to go, and you have your tickets? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, have you bought flight insurance? I said, no. Why, why you ask? He said, well, why don't you take out $100,000 worth, put it in my name, I'll pay for it. And, and I said, well, why would I do that? And he said, I don't know, I just feel lucky today. <laughs> so, uh, see, but this is what, this is the sort of thing that makes AA so imponderable. It is, it's why we have never been 
adequately represented. You know, I have asked my friends in the industry in Los Angeles there, why don't you ever show AA the way it is? Why do you have those tragic portrayals? You remember when Burt Lancaster got his first birthday cake and come back little Sheba? One of the most heart-rending things I ever saw. <laughs> hang on, hang on. You know. Or when Jack Lemon, uh, you know, in the days of Wine and Roses, when Jack was still pretending to be an alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> you know, if the AA meetings were as gloomy as the ones that he was going to, I'd have gone out and got drunk with his wife. <laughs> and so I've asked people, why don't you show AA the way it is? And they say, we can't do it. The public will not accept it. How could you possibly show a room filled with people of a deadly disease, terminal in nature, and a person gets up and tells a story that would tear tears from the heart of a stone, and they break out laughing. Ha, 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 ha. And then I got the Jake leg and couldn't walk. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> they, you know, they just simply won't accept it. But really, that is what AA is like. It, it's so strange because the newcomer thinks when he arrives, at least most of us did, I think, and still do, that this is somehow the end of the line. This is where there's going to be no more fun. A dark walk through a dank tunnel, no lights on Friday nights, or a struggle up an arid mount carrying my cross of sobriety. <laughs> and it is nothing like that. This is where it all begins. Now, this is when the first time you're really free to live. You know, if you drank like I did, you were a complete slave to booze. That's why somebody else was telling me earlier about some talk I gave where I was explaining that I don't go in much for drunkologues anymore because they don't tell what I used to be like. They simply tell what happened to me. Meaning, I didn't do those things on purpose. That wasn't what I was like. You know, I, I occasionally hear people say, I can't blame the things I did while drinking on the flip. And I always think, oh, you poor soul, that must be tragic. I can. <laughs> I mind virtually every rotten thing that ever happened to me on it. I never, I never even wanted to be an alcoholic. Never walked into some consular's office and said, I think I'd like to major in vomiting. <laughs> Perhaps a minor in diarrhea. <laughs> I never had an evening go the way I intended it. I never said to myself, what do we do? It's Friday night. I got a pint in the house. I think I'll kill that and then I'll go out and total the car. <laughs> I've just canceled the insurance to save money. So that'll be a good start. Perhaps on the way to the hospital, the ambulance attendant will roll me so I'll have no identification. I can spend 24 hours being humiliated down a general, but I can cuff another jug on the way home and I can terrorize the wife and children all day Sunday afternoon. <laughs> now, I mean, I'm certain from the moment I arose that it was apparent I was far too sophisticated, urbane, and gentle a soul to do things like that, but they happened to me. Now, to talk about the things that happened while you were drinking really doesn't tell what you were like. It, I never met an alcoholic who wasn't like I was. Kind, loving, gentle, understanding, compassionate. Saying to the world, like one of our ex-presidents, come, let us reason together. Let us do it my way. You know, at, <laughs> and they won't do it. You know, They smite us the 90 and 9 blows and drive us into this pariah's nest. And if we retaliate once... It, I, I, I don't I don't really know that there's any way to short circuit what it takes to get here. You know, because it isn't the eloquence of our speakers, though we certainly have some, and it isn't the wondrous simplicity of our book with its straightforward, non-Freudian, non-Greek mythological nonsense. What really wears down the point on the intellectual's head through friction against the gutter is booze. You know, booze is the great proselytizer. It instills that state of sweet reasonableness known only to the dying. That seems to be a prerequisite to the conception that you might be wrong. I, you know, I don't know why. Weird things. This is a weird place here tonight, and I, I've been thinking of... <laughs> Mickey started, you know, at the end of the, one of the readings, you know, about uh, God couldn't, would, or saw it, or something like that. She started to add that chanting that they uh, they do at certain meetings, you know, the responses. And uh, I had I have a preaching uncle, and uh, he was a very strange fellow. And uh, the one man I never really wanted to be like, 
I remember he used to visit us when I was a child, and he would reach down from his imperious heights. He would enshroud my tiny hand with his enormous paw and say, How are you, Donald? And just like that, I'd remember the last time I'd masturbated. No, I, uh, you know, I don't know why. He hadn't mentioned it, but I knew he was against it. And... Yeah, he was a tall, gaunt man with piercing black eyes, sunken cheeks, had a little dumpy wife. He looked just like uh, Somerset Mom's description of the preacher in rain, you know, got mixed up with Sadie Thompson. In fact, he went over and he had a mission in Hong Kong, and the, when the war started, and the Japanese uh, captured him, threw him in a concentration camp for the length of the war. About the only thing I think they did that was worthwhile. Uh, <laughs> the rest of that cohesion prosperity sphere didn't really mean much, but... I met him after the war was over, and of course I was an adult then, I'd been in the service, and we met and shook hands, and I thought about it, but it didn't bother me. And, <laughs> but he was a, a man you could not talk to on any subject for more than about five minutes without, he brought it around to the fact that the end of the world was nigh. He, him, who died in the cross, and so on. It wasn't that I was against it, it was simply that that wasn't what I wanted to talk about in every given situation. And now I find I'm becoming increasingly like him. You can't talk to me on any subject for more than five or ten minutes without my turning it around to an AA cliché. Yes, easy does it. <laughs> you know, tragic, really. And when I, hear those, I, when I hear those responses, I think, you know, I don't think I'm really going to be happy until in the middle of one of my talks someone leaps up and speaks in tongues. Uh, <laughs> I want the responses. Who'll say amen to that? Who'll say God bless Bill Wilson? God, you know, don't take the first drink. No, the closest I ever came, I was speaking on the San Gabriel Valley one night, a little place beyond any lengths, where they, they get up and they not only read everything, including individual prayers the members have made up, but they qualify. Now, why that should be true, I can't, I never have imagined, imagine why that is so. I mean, as, Sam says we've gained a certain amount of stature, but still, to be an alcoholic isn't something ordinarily that you're going to bring up in order to get ahead in life. Yeah. As Vicky says, if someone tells you they have a social disease, you believe them. You don't say, prove it, whip it out. Uh, yeah. But so a man tells me an alcoholic, I'll take his word for it, but they were qualifying. And I was there to split a pitch with somebody else. And as they went through the readings and through the qualifications, our time kept diminishing. We kept dropping glittering jewels on which you could build a life. And finally, with about half an hour left, they had a coffee break. And during the coffee break, some newcomer had an unmitigated gall to have a convulsion on my time. <laughs> and he down there writhing on the floor. I wanted to kick him in the head. Work the steps! Work the steps! Uh, But when we got him carried away, uh, his tongue restrained with a spoon, I found that in the time that was left, the audience was extraordinarily attentive because the message had been delivered. You know, I mean, he wasn't entirely articulate down there on the floor, but he was sure sincere. Ah! Ah! I tried to get him to travel with me. Uh, unfortunately, he sobered up. Uh, so, what it is, of course, that uh, is required to make this program seems to be you have to drink as much as it's going to take. There doesn't seem to be any easier, softer way. But the odd thing is that when you get here, as I started... As I say a moment ago, I'm going to give a talk sometime just entitled, I Digress. Uh, but as I was saying a minute ago, when you come in, life really begins. For me, when I uncorked a bottle, a genie came out, but except instead of my telling it what to do, it told me what we were going to do. You know, And I did not plan those things. Therefore, to tell you about drinking episodes would not really describe what I was like. They were just things that happened. I'm required to tell one, however, because it... Uh, has become apparently something of a memorable part of my story. You know, you with these tapes that circulate around, 
you finally think you found a virgin audience and 14 people come up and say, make sure you tell a story, uh, some bit of idiocy that you wouldn't confess to your mother, <laughs> is all they're going to remember from your talks. But this particular one, and I will describe it since there was some talk about not paying the airfare if I didn't. Uh, because it was a moment of insight to me, because until this time, I had always been able to rationalize and justify every incident in my drinking that caused me to come into conflict with society. Because of necessity, in order to conflict with society, you must have some other member of society participating. And you can blame him. Because to some extent, he will be in the wrong. I mean, if he hadn't have made a left turn, I wouldn't have hit him. But if, he, if I hadn't been an unguided missile coming down the street, I might have seen he was making the left turn considerably earlier. You know, if he hadn't have said what he said about our beloved president, I wouldn't have a broken nose. Which is true, but if I hadn't been bombed, he might not have made his point so tellingly. But, so I was always able to explain it until this particular incident. Now, as a preface, I should say, I drank almost exclusively to relax. And on this occasion, I'd been relaxed about a week. <laughs> I awoke from a tormented and fitful sleep. I'd had nightmarish visions of Dante's Inferno. There were imps of the perverse. I could smell the brimstone. And I awakened and staggered to my feet. And indeed, I, I was just drenched with perspiration. And I thought, what's wrong? I, even fleetingly occurred to me it might have something to do with drinking. But I quickly realized that such was not the case. Because I looked down and I saw that I had passed, I had nodded off uh, on a couch, my family having retired to wherever it was they used to go at night, and I had passed, I had nodded off on this couch with a cigarette either in my hand or mouth, and it had fallen onto the covering of this couch, you know, that heavy kind of plastic or cellular, whatever kind of covering they have over couches, and it had burnt its way in to the inside because there was a thin spire of smoke coming up. But having no oxygen down in there, to take flame, it had simply spread. The embers had spread during the course of the night. And I saw then there was nothing wrong with my drinking. I'd just been barbecued. <laughs> so I went into the kitchen. I got a pitcher of water. I came back and I tried to pour it into that little hole, producing only a rather spectacular cascade on the carpet. So I knew more dramatic measures were demanded. So I went into the kitchen again, came back with a butcher knife, slashed the couch open from one end to the other, spread it apart to expose the embers, and then was able to subdue them with the cooling balm of the water. The only thing was it produced acrid black smoke. Now this has been you know, almost 50 years ago. <laughs> Half a century, a quarter of this nation's history. <laughs> and I, By the way, you may have noticed I am what they call chronologically challenged. Uh, <laughs> I'm old, and I, I, I stood there looking down at that slashed and sodden mass and knowing almost to a certainty that my wife was going to notice it. <laughs> she was a very keen-eyed woman. There was little that passed her ken around that house, I'll tell you. And though she was a good woman in pre-Alanon condition, she would never intentionally do anything to assail the head of the household, assault the dignity, emasculate her husband's intelligence and stature. And yet, in moments of stress, she had been known to say things that were unkind, <laughs> a cruel even, things that later, when she had calmed, would cause her great remorse. I mean, she might say, you drunken son of a bitch, you did it again, didn't you? See, and this would cause her great pain later when she thought about it. And so I wanted to spare her this. <laughs> but I couldn't think of anything to do until finally it dawned on me, get the couch out of the house. I mean, she might vaguely remember there had been something on that side of the room, but out of sight, out of mind. The only thing is, it isn't easy to be moving a bed couch when you should be checking into a sanitarium. <laughs> but with that Herculean strength that comes only to the truly panic-stricken youthful alcoholic, 
I was somehow able to heft that monster onto my shoulder and lurch out the front door. At that time, we were living on the second floor of an apartment building that had very tiny porches. I remember there were columns. I virtually beat myself to death, caroming off the post, trying to make the turn, you know, bang, bang, bang. But finally, I succeeded in making the descent. And then I saw that, like Bobby Burns's mouse, foresight had not been my long suit. There is virtually no place that one can conceal a couch in a typical apartment patio. So I'm standing there. My legs are trembling. I should be in a hospital, but I'm moving furniture. And I remembered a creek about five miles away. So I staggered to my car, and I hefted that brute up on top of it and got in to drive to my selected place of repose. Now, all I have ever really aspired to in life is dignity. I have not caviled that disaster when I could face it with dignity. But as I was driving down the road, by this time, it was daylight. You know, I don't know what time it was, 6.30, 7, 7, I don't know what time it is. But there were people on the corners at the bus stops, you know, with lunch pails and briefcases and things like that. I have no idea how they stay up that late. We get up and take a look at it. But as I proceeded down the street, I noticed that their heads all turned to follow my progress. Eyes wide. Jaws agape. I thought, by golly, it doesn't take much to draw a crowd in California. I'll say that. Until I passed by an auto dealership that had a dusty window, large display window that acted like a mirror. And I got a reflection of what it was they were looking at. Here comes a fellow down the street. He's not only attired in a bathrobe, had a week's growth of whiskers, and on top of his car sets a couch, which previously had lacked oxygen enough to take flame, but going down a street, the wind was going through it like a bellows, and the the flames were 30, 40 feet in the air. And when I returned, strive as I might, I could think of no way to blame my sleeping wife and children for having imperiled their lives as they obviously had. And it did then indeed occur to me that there might be something wrong with my drinking. But that's enough of that. Let's just say that subsequently I was to move beyond social drinking. In fact, in the final stages of my drinking, I wasn't getting in any trouble at all with society. I mean, how much trouble can you get into in a hotel room with a bottle of wine and a copy of Playboy? <laughs> you know, uh, the maid doesn't step on you. You're reasonably safe. The only thing is you're dying in there. This, of course, is all prerequisite to that condition that I mentioned that occurs to us that we perhaps should try the a program because it has nothing to do with intelligence, obviously. I mean, alcoholism without question is, to me today, the simplest disorder ever to have afflicted mankind. And when I first came around, I thought it was some strange, subtle, arcane malady that for which science had neither adequate definition to say nothing of cure. And now it just seems to me so patently simple. You know, the very name, alcoholism, gives you such a clue as to what the problem is. <laughs> that if you weren't handicapped with a degree in psychology, and someone were to say to you, what do you think causes alcoholism? I warrant you'd come up with the correct response instantly. Alcohol? <laughs> <laughs> because that's it. No alcohol, no alcoholics. There, we don't, there's no emotional graph that you can draw the alcoholic. I've never known an alcoholic to suffer from any emotional problem that non-alcoholics don't suffer from. You know, I mean, the deadly sins weren't written about alcoholics. They're written about human beings. We have the same things. Our book says we come and 
Oh, we, we have psychotics, the book says. Why not? Why should they get off any easier than the rest of us? <laughs> we have sociopathic, sociopathic inferiors, they used to call them. We have neurotics in every hue on the emotional spectrum. We have people who are normal, healthy, in every respect, the book says, except the effect alcohol has on them. Happy, contented, friendly people. I've never met any of them. <laughs> but sobering up in L.A., you wouldn't expect to. It, uh, I assume they were huddled around Akron when Bill was writing the book. <laughs> but, the th but it is literally true. You don't have to be crazy to be an alcoholic. There's no handicap if you are. One person in ten, roughly, who drinks is going to be an alcoholic, and it has nothing to do with his race, creed, color, sex, sexual preference, educational background, anything. You know, <laughs> we've had, what, about ten guys walk on the face of the moon? One of them's already in AA. <laughs> they check those guys pretty good. They're not wired right. They don't shoot them off. I was down at the wharf down here today as I, my inspection tour, and I watched those fellows, those barges, about five or six long barges in length, and I thought, one in ten is an alcoholic. <laughs> no wonder they hit a bridge now and then. Uh, but it's true. The only thing that distinguishes us, our book tells us, is the phenomenon of craving that results from taking the first drink. Other than that, we don't have any different emotions and different things upset us. In fact, the newcomer has to guard himself or his sponsor will try to give him his problems. <laughs> we, we have all kinds of crazy things that are going to be said from the podium because we've been over 50 years now in existence, and as a result, we've developed a litany. A certain amount of things are said. They don't make any sense, and they're untrue, but it doesn't do any harm. You know, I mean, we say things like, when A.A. started, you had to be a bum, a derelict. You had to watch you were suspect. That's silly. A.A. was started by a stockbroker who carried the message to a practicing doctor. The two of them got together, made their first 12-step call on a lawyer. Except for that third guy, that wasn't a bad trio to draw to. <laughs> you know, A.A. has never been made up of people. Or they'd say... Good to see you young people coming in. When I came to A, if you were more than six months younger than a tree, you couldn't come to the meeting. You know, it's just silly. Bill, I guess, was still in his 40s, and he wrote the book. Down in L.A., the oldest members, Sybil, Cliff, the rest of them were 29. I was 29 when I got here. You know, and that's almost, uh, that's about 39 years ago to save things. I'm now 48. Uh, <laughs> but no, I... It doesn't do any harm to say those things. They're not true. It's like we tell every newcomer, do not become emotionally involved in the first year. Whether that's sound advice, we have no way of knowing, because in the history of AA, no newcomer has ever taken it. <laughs> but if you have any concern at all for tradition, you're going to tell that same thing to the people you work with. So when they screw up, as they invariably shall, you can add to their torment and suffering by saying, I told you not to go out without a loser. <laughs> so all of these various things are are said from the podium, but don't take them seriously. I, when I first came around, I remember we had a guy got up on the podium and he'd look out at a group and he'd say, the first thing you're going to have to do if you want to make this program is admit you're a thief, because all alcoholics are thieves. That shook me because I had not, at least at that point, ever stolen physical things. I stole love, affection, kindness, tenderness, your time and patience, but I didn't steal your material possessions. Maybe I wasn't desperate enough, maybe I was frightened, I don't know. But I didn't steal things. And it disturbed me. And then I realized he doesn't know all alcoholics. If he had a wide range of acquaintance, he couldn't know more than a couple hundred. So what he says about all alcoholics tells you absolutely nothing about all alcoholics, but it tells you something about him. He's a thief. Anybody who says all alcoholics are thieves and I'm an alcoholic, he's a thief. And I watched him over the years. He burnt newcomers. Oh, he was just incredible. Didn't do any harm, but uh, he was a thief. We had another guy. He was even more disconcerting. He used to look out at the audience and then point his finger and say, if you want to make this program, the first thing you must do is admit you're a latent homosexual. But that, that really got me because I'm trying to quit drinking and he's telling me I'm going to have to give up boys. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
You know, hell, I'd never tried them, and as far as I knew, they might be the answer. I mean, my wife, my wife was sure as well hell out of hand, I'll tell you. And then I realized he doesn't know all alcoholics, but I've learned a little something about him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. So try not to pay any attention to that. When you get into your own inventory, you're going to find enough to keep you busy without worrying about other people's problems. Uh, most of the time, your inventory is not going to be the subtle, dramatic thing that you think it is. You're going to confess to a few idiotic bits of behavior that will later become the funny parts of your story. And then you're going to have to grow up. Now, that's really, as near as I can tell, all I've had to do in the program really is grow up. Start recognizing self-denial, self-discipline, self-control, what I didn't do before. See, because most of us begin drinking during our adolescence. You know, 14, 15 years old, you begin drinking. Now, adolescence is a form of, society, a form of insanity. And alcohol is a great preservative. <laughs> you know, you put alcohol into a 15-year-old, as in my case, and come back 10, 15 years later... They haven't changed. Wrinkled, grayed a little bit, perhaps been educated beyond his intelligence, but emotionally, he's <laughs> like the adolescent. Everybody look at me. I'm dressing funny. Oh, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at me. You know, it's ridiculous. And so we have to change. We have to. The odd thing is that then we have to work to program. Now, there's nothing. Our program is as simple, without question, as is the disease. I mean, at every meeting, it's read like the Chinese water torture. They have a chapter subtly captioned, How It Works. Now, that naturally escapes the intellectual. They even have the steps numbered so you'll know the sequence. You know, but we can't believe anything that direct could be that serious. And there's nothing... I, you know, they're so... Remember that Bill wrote the book, what, when he had less than four years of sobriety. And everybody else had a year. And he said, These are the steps we took... Assume they weren't lying to us. When did they take them? They took them the first year. They didn't know anything about people sober 5, 10, 15 years, gurus with 20, 30 years of sobriety who can't find their ass with either hand, can lead to multitude sports, you know. I don't think you could become confused about these steps unless you went to a step study meeting. And there is certainly nothing unique about them. As far as I know, they represent the opinion that every saint, sage, elder of the village who've ever reflected upon how one should live have unanimously agreed upon. I've read, I've read things written over 2,000 years ago that are direct plagiarisms from our big book. <laughs> you know, sometimes in A, we're always saying A is a spiritual program, not a religious one. Now, we know what we mean by that. We mean there's no dogma. There's no theological superstructure that you have to accept. But sometimes we say it in a way to imply that religions are not spiritual, which always comes as a shock to the Pope. You know, uh, many religions, you know, have been struggling along for millennia before, while we were still sucking on the jug and unable to help them. Uh, the only difference that I can see in our pr respective programs is I'm not now talking about the religious superstructure, as I mentioned earlier, the ideological things that you have to, the theology that they argue about. Because their religions, they fight about it, they dispute about it, they go to war about it, they kill each other about it, they do everything but work it. You know, <laughs> we have to work it. God knows we don't want to. I mean, we're like the non-alcoholic. We're not going to give up a lifetime of failure without a struggle. I mean, most of us wouldn't cross the street if we thought it would make us feel better. <laughs> I'll stay right here and hurt. I can take it as long as you can. You, I won't change. I'll stay here and hurt. But we have to do it. They don't. Nothing ever happens to them. I mean, they go through their life with locked jaw ulcers, live lives of quiet desperation. But nothing significant occurs. No one's ever been arrested for driving while pissed off. I mean, you don't get booked for being a common mope, whining and disorderly. <laughs> hey, we have to do it. Frightening as it sounds to the newcomer, we have to live a life that is guaranteed to make you happy. 
Newcomers don't come in looking for that. They come in looking for causes for complaint, explanation for disaster. But you can get used to happiness. It's not as bad as it sounds. Even contentment can be endured in time. Unless the newer people here lose hope, I want to assure you that things are going to occur in the course of your sobriety that are going to curl your hair. Things, you know, because the world, it is the old world yet. Everything that is, happens to human beings will happen to you while you're sober. People are going to fail to recognize you. They're going to die. You're going to become ill. All the things that flesh or air to are going to happen to you. And having forfeited your right to chemical peace of mind, you simply stand there and hurt. Sometimes it seems like you'll be surrounded by a cylinder of pain in which there is not only no door, there isn't a seam. And you stand there and take it. And then one day the walls fall away and you see the world like you never saw it before. Nothing ever really bothers you that badly afterward. And just give an example in case it make it sound like I have somehow escaped it. I haven't. About uh, three or four years ago, I guess now, my wife uh, came home, interrupted a, a burglar, he smashed her in the face, broke all the bones in her face, took two plastic surgeries to put her back together. He wasn't out to get me, as the police first thought. He was just some guy loaded on crack, and he happened to pick a house. It was ours. You might say, why should this happen to someone like my wife, who's been trying for the last quarter century to help people with drug and alcohol problems? Why should it happen to them? Well, the answer, of course, really is, why shouldn't it? rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, perhaps we're even in a better position to understand it than many might be. Someday this guy may come on the program. And if when he does, you know, most of our stories, at the, when we, as I said earlier, they're tragic, but they become something that we laugh about in here. This guy's going to have a very funny story. I, I mean, I can visualize it. He's going to say, yeah, you know, I, I needed a fix, and I was out in the San Fernando Valley, and I just picked out a house. You know, my luck, I got the house of a judge. <laughs> Not only a judge, but a justice of the appellate courts. His wife came home, pow, I put her in the hospital. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'll laugh, but I'm not going to sponsor him. Uh, Within a year after that, up in a little town, San Luis Obispo, somebody burglarized the house of my elderly stepmother, 80 years old, and raped her. Grabbed her by the face, ruined her cataract surgery she just had. Less than a year after that, in this even smaller town where everybody looked out for each other, at least except one person, burglarized the home of my mother and murdered her. See, this, is, this world is a tragic world at times. <laughs> And we're not going to escape. You know, this is one of the reasons why I try not to hurt anybody. I don't even want revenge on anybody anymore. There is so much suffering, so much misery in this world that I don't want to add a drop to it. But these are the things that occur. But most of the time, it is going to be an extraordinarily happy and exciting experience if you will go out and, as Sam was stressing, live. Get it on out there. My God... If you were a slave as I was to booze and, and it told you what to do, for the first time you're going to be free to do whatever you want. Like Martin Luther King, you know, in his famous hymn, free at last, free at last, great God Almighty to be free at last. That's what it is. You get out and do it. You don't need chemical courage anymore. Because you have the greatest scapegoat known to man. I haven't made a mistake in decades. No errors, no deviations from the path of valor or rectitude, not the faintest faux pas have I been guilty of. On the other hand, God has seen fit to do through me some of the dumbest, most petty, egomaniacal, lewd, lurid, self-aggrandizing things that you could conceive of. But if it gives him pleasure to make me look like a horse's ass, who are you to criticize? <laughs> Take it up with him. I mean, other speakers come here and they probably tell you that what they say is their own opinion. That's not true in my case. I've taken the third step. What I tell you is the word of God. <laughs> you better listen up. The only trouble is he keeps changing his message about once a month making me look like an utter boob for having misconstrued it in my last talk. 
Yeah, but this is what it is. Get out and live. Moderation should remain a rumor to you. <laughs> Anything worth doing. I'm, I'm a, the Oscar Wilde school. Nothing succeeds like excess. You know, how are you ever going to know when you've had enough unless you get too much of whatever it is? If you're not hurting anybody, get it on, for God's sakes. You know, somebody once asked me about, why do you seem to live a more exciting or ebullient life than we do? Your program better? I said, no, I don't think it's any better. I just do more things, perhaps. I said, have you learned to fly an airplane since you got sober? No. Well, do it. I said, I went out to the old Whiteman Airport, took three hours of training, and soloed. Rented the airplane that weekend, flew to San Francisco. It didn't have any instruments. I didn't know anything about navigation. I just flew over Highway 101. Ha, 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 ha. Big book up here. Uh, took my first freefall parachute jump just before I became a grandfather about 23 years ago or so. And got through the male menopause racing motorcycles with Steve McQueen out in the desert. The only copy of the big book they used to see around Barstow on Sunday. You know. I couldn't have done any of those things when I was drinking. Of course, I had to be dignified. I had to pretend booze wasn't affecting me. I took up scuba, you know, I went scuba diving. I know you're supposed to study. You put on snorkels and the fins and practice in a pool or something. I'll give you a light. I may even give you a light. I don't have time for that. You know, I mean, I'm a hum a couple of bars, I'll pick it up type. Uh, when I came around to A, they said everything the alcoholic needs to know is in the big book. So why in the hell would I bother with snorkeling? Uh, I put in all the gear, leaped in off. Catalina Island, got down into Seaweed City. I mean, it was so beautiful down there, I stayed down until I ran out of air. <laughs> Put my higher power to the test. But this is what it is like. This is what you should be doing. You know, I, we're talking here, Mickey. I, I had to quit smoking. I know that one or two people here are still socially smoking. Uh, <laughs> I know there's social smoker because Kendall, uh, the sophisticated humorist, uh, <coughs> I heard him say to you folks, use a little moderation. <laughs> if you can use moderation in your smoking, you might just have a few beers after you leave, too. I, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I smoke. Two to three packs of camels for 35 years. I, I don't know whether tobacco is a large industry around here, but if it is, I've put several of you growers' sons through college. I want you to know that. Uh, I look back on it now, and it strikes me as bizarre. You know, I, it, like everything else, I come from the backwoods of Oregon where we used to shoot deer and hang the venison in the smoke shed behind the house. And I know what smoke does to raw meat, but for 35 years I made lung jerky. <laughs> So when the doctor finally gave me a mantra to repeat emphysema, uh, they said, get into running. That's the way to try to salvage what's left of your lungs. Running. I mean, all of the evil forms of locomotion that man has ever devised, <laughs> running certainly has to be in the lead. All my life I have, you know, I knew running was... In the army, they used to make you double time with a backpack as punishment. In sports, they made you run laps if you goofed off. You know, it's a form of pain. I have seen runners, of course, usually old men with gnarled, knobby knees, <laughs> the sweat bands grunting and panting along the sides of highways. And what I would look at them and think, oh, poor pathetic souls, that it should come to that. A fanatic is anybody who's doing something a week before I start. <laughs> Now I'm one of them. <laughs> I, I, when that running craze hit here about 20 years ago, they ran around my neighborhood. I live in a fairly decent neighborhood, and I'd look at them, and they usually hairy people, they would be running. And I, I would think, oh, I hope they don't steal anything. <laughs> you know, and now I'm just astonished that the distinguished ladies and gentlemen one can meet in their underwear out on the streets. <laughs> and, 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 and. Yeah, I couldn't go half a block. When I, start, I couldn't go 50 yards and I started. <laughs> when I kept it up, you know, I have a thing for pain. And I was leaving my house one night after having run two miles without stopping. And I caught myself skipping as I went down the walk. Yip, dee, dip, dee, dip. You know, instantly I stopped and thought, oh, God, I hope the neighbors didn't see that. I, I hope they didn't see that. I mean, I didn't skip as a boy. You know, I've been called Mr. Gates since I was 12. Uh, I allow my intimates to call me sir. 
and, and I'm skipping. I thought, what is wrong with you? Then I realized nothing was wrong with me, quite the contrary. I'd done something that was good for me, and my body was rewarding me by kicking in endorphins. That's what your body will do when you put any form of stress on it. It produces something that allows you to do it. And endorphins are endogenous morphine. And I realized I was high. Well, you know what happened then. If two miles will make you high, how about four, eight, sixteen? I mean, before the year was out, I was running half marathons. I had stress fractures in both feet, bursitis the hip, my back gave out. I didn't have a moment free from pain after I got healthy. <laughs> but the body heals, and uh, I ultimately ended up running five marathons, 26 milers. I don't recommend it, but I'm just indicating that this is what I recommend that people do in whatever they do, is do it. You know you know, oddly enough, I thinking here just a second ago, for some reason, these things I was describing that I talked about living a full and exciting life. I, I saw a thing on public television a while back on the brain, and it was, it was quite fascinating. But the part that, that caught me most was they, were, they have discovered that alcoholics, unlike other people, do not produce those endorphins in the quantities that others do. In other words, we are naturally deficient in the production of endorphins. And that's as a result, whenever there is stress, strain, or demands, and there always are in life, we don't meet them in the relatively calm fashion that other people do. They get excited briefly, and then they come down because their body comes in with these endorphins. We don't do it. Therefore, everything is kind of a glow for us. We're way up or we're way down. You know, it's like television when it's on, turned on too hot. And it dawned on me, for some reason, watching that, I identified so much because I remember early in my sobriety, there was a guy who ran an aircraft company out in the valley, and he used to talk about how, suppose a person was born with a headache. Not a fierce, down-on-your-knees migraine, but a throbbing, dull headache that was with you permanently. If you were born with it, how would you know you had it? You wouldn't. You would assume everybody had it. And yet everybody else would seem to be able to carry on and deal with life in a way that you were unable to. You would feel different and strange. And then suppose when you were 14 or 15, someone gave you some aspirin. And the headache went away. And you felt wonderful. You felt free. One with man and God. What would you do if you were not a total lunatic? You would take aspirin at every possible opportunity. Not because you were trying to escape, but on the contrary, because you wanted to be like other people. But then suppose after a time the aspirin turned on you and began to do wild, crazy things, use money you shouldn't have done, ended up hospitalized, did things so antisocial they threw you in jail to rub your nose in it for a while. What would you do? You'd quit taking aspirin. But the moment you quit, bang, back comes the headache. And that... It suddenly struck me, that's what we're talking about. My friend Clancy, you know, he always stresses how between drunks were nervous, irritable, and tense. That didn't mean anything to me. That, that's just to say, my, to with me, why is that so? Well, hearing this, I can now understand why that is so. If you don't produce endorphins, you're going to be irritable, tense, discontented. And I, it suddenly dawned on me, everything I talked about of exciting living was endorphin-producing. They were all thrill sports. You know, why do people get on a roller coaster? It's frightening. They, they scream, <laughs> but when they get off, <laughs> oh, you want to go again? You know, they're high. It's kicked in endorphins. And that is every single sport and everything I have described to you was a way of producing endorphins. And there's all sorts of ways of doing that. Hell, go on a 12-step call when you don't want to. <laughs> You'll come away feeling high, huh? <laughs> Any demand that you put upon yourself that you go through will make you feel good on it. Now, our, our program is a startlingly happy and exciting thing. I don't mean to indicate, as I did earlier, that, that it's always that way. It has terrible moments, and then when you're first starting, it doesn't even seem possible. When I first sobered up in L.A., uh, oh, I... I had a hell of a time trying to get work. I'd been sober long enough that I knew that our stories can be the source of innocent merriment. And I went to a large law firm and tried to get a job. 
And I told him a few little stories in order to entertain, enlighten, and endear myself. I'd long since outgrown the need for human approval. <laughs> no, I mean, I, <laughs> I wanted him to love me to the glory of your name, and so he'd give me a job. Uh, so I told him, you know, not big stories, a little icebreaker, maybe about the time I got drunk and threw my mother-in-law down the steps and uh, being intoxicated, fell after, got a hernia, you know, some little thing like that. And Because I, I knew they were funny stories, but I didn't yet realize that non-alcoholics would fail to see the humor in them. <laughs> he didn't giggle a gig. He didn't titter a tit. He just kind of stared. You know, and then I, I went further. I, I told him, I thought, well, I'm being too subtle. So I told him about the time I was in four-point restraint and vomited straight up. Uh, that got a reaction. <gasps> and finally I said, well, look, I'm not asking you to recommend me. <laughs> he said, recommend you? Recommend you? I wouldn't offer your name for consideration. No attorney in the history of this nation has ever done the things that you've done or had happened to him, the things that have happened to you. I suggest you forget the law, go into the countryside, try to regain your health and simple labor. When we send members of this law firm into a court, they represent strength in the face of adversity, determination, grit, steadfastness. Send you? Never. I was crushed. I mean, I'll tell you, I was not ready for that. I had not expected it. If I could have crawled like a serpent across the floor under the door out to drown the shame of that, that bottomless bottle like I always had, I'd have done it. But then I thought, if I do, he'll be right. I can't take it. And I won't give that rotten fellow the satisfaction. I went out and drank coffee at him. <laughs> About ten years after that, he flipped out, took the check protector, one of the secretaries, ran to Paris, disgraced his law firm, disgraced the legal profession, disgraced his family, disgraced the city of Pasadena. One of the most beautiful pyrotechnic displays of misconduct I ever saw, and he did it cold sober. <laughs> about 20 years after that, about, I guess it's, uh, what, 12, 13 years ago now, the governor of our state called me and told me he was appointing me to the appellate bench. As far as I know, the highest judicial office ever held by a sober alcoholic, at least in the state of California, you know what happens now if I enter a courtroom and members of that law firm are there? They stand up and they remain standing until I tell them they can be seated. <laughs> All power to the powerless. And yet I really haven't changed all that much. I mean, I've changed, obviously, in the sense that I am sober, which is the greatest change that can come into the life of an alcoholic. And I've learned to laugh at myself, which, by the way, should you not learn to do, will cause you to miss the greatest joke in your generation. <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, but basically, I haven't changed in that emotional sense. I still suffer and struggle with the same problem, Sam stressed that, that I had before. It doesn't seem right that the at my term of sobriety, such unsophisticated answers as AA is always provided are what I have to resort to, but they do, because I just, I'm still the same way. I have a tendency toward, I have the patience of Job, except I get fed up periodically. Yeah. You know, and oh, I'm trying to think of some kind of example. Uh, I bought a house some 20 years or so ago, and it was a fixer-upper type. A fellow's wife had left him, and he had lived in the house with three dogs, and one of the quartet had been urinating on the floors. I remember that. But it was a, it was a fixer-upper, and we went out in the backyard, and he had a swimming pool, a fairly large swimming pool, and it was just covered with leaves. And his reason was his neighbor's tree limbs were hanging over the wall, over his pool, and shedding. And I said to him, for God's sakes, why don't you ask your neighbor to cut those trees back? And he said, oh, you can't do it. The man's crazy. He's absolutely insane. You don't you take your life in your hand even to go in the backyard. And I thought to myself, hmm. See, that's what you do in the daytime when you're facing a problem. You say, hmm. Because if you really want to think about something, you've got to wait until it's night. When you've turned off the lights, it's utter darkness now. You're lying in bed. There's no possibility of proportion or perspective. That's the time to give her a think. <laughs> Delirium is a disease of the night. <laughs> I bought the house, and I thought, I waited, and I'm lying there in bed, and I thought, well, let's see, what am I going to do? Well, I thought the first thing I better do is go see that neighbor about those trees. 
no real problem here. I'll walk in, I'll give him my card. And I impliedly, and he'll say, take your card and stick it up your... I thought, oh, that dirty son of a gun. I won't start that. I won't start arrogant or hostile. I'll start a little light. I'll tell him a few funny stories. And he'll say, you think you're funny, punk? Oh, God damn him. See? And so I started playing I'll say, he'll say. Okay. Pretty soon the headache, the acid is running. I'm up marching down in the hall. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm saying to myself, stop it, Don. Stop it. For God's sake, you're a main speaker. Uh, <laughs> sometimes even that doesn't work. <clears throat> you know, and finally, I, the solution came to me. Because for every simple problem, no matter how complex, there is always one ready and direct and simple answer, which is wrong. In this case, it came to me, there's no problem here. I'll just kill him. I'll find out when he goes to work in the morning, park down the street. He comes up, pop, I'll pick him off as he goes to his car. No problem about that. Well, now, this was so utterly ludicrous that it caused me to break out into laughter and let go. Because my higher power will not do anything for me I'm capable of doing for myself. And what's worse, he won't do anything for me I think I'm capable of doing for myself. In other words, how can you turn over something that you think you can still manipulate? And this was so absolutely idiotic that I laughed about it, went in, fell asleep, and had a good night. That weekend, I went over to see the guy, didn't even think about what I'm going to say or not say, just walked over to see him. We chatted. He was a most amicable, agreeable fellow. We got to laughing and joking and chatting. I even forgot almost why I was there. And I said, oh, by the way... I wanted to ask you about those trees out in the backyard. He said, what trees? I said, well, the trees, you know, they're growing there, your property line, the limbs are out over my pool, and they're shedding on it. He said, the hell you say? I said, yeah, come on out, we'll take a look. He looked out, and he said, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Oh, what you must think of me. Oh, I'm so ashamed. I'll get somebody in here instantly. We'll cut those back. I'll clean up your yard. Oh, please forgive me. What? Oh, I just awful. what you must think of me. He said, but I, I, the only explanation I can give you, that fellow you bought that house from, he's crazy. You, you, don't, you don't dare go in the backyard. I mean, the man take your life in your hand to go out there. The man it's crazy. And so when I left, I said, you know, it's a nice neighborhood. I'm glad I moved in and I'm... Truly pleased to have you as a neighbor, but you'll never know how close you came to dying. <laughs> There's a way I haven't changed all that much. It's really true. And earlier there when I was talking about how, like my uncle, it, you can't talk to me on any subject. You see, we have a way of speaking that identifies us with each other. I mean, you go into a market or something and somebody's, you happen to bump somebody as you're hit, get, heading to the checkout counter. Oh, no, no, go ahead. First things first. No, no, no. Easy does it. Oh, you're a friend of Bill. You know, we, we, we find each other that way. It comes up in everything we do. I, I find it even in my work. See, I, I, when I write a decision and decide to publish it now, it becomes binding law on 33 million people. It's binding on every trial court in California. It appears in every law library in the United States. And I find my AA stuff coming up in it. You know, we say things in the law archaic, like we'll say his complaint sounds in tort, or it sounds in contract, or it sounds in equity. I don't know why we say it sounds in it. What we mean is he's trying to state a cause of action in that particular field of the law. Blackstone said it, and we thought it was catchy, uh, so we say it. I, I, I wrote a decision that said, Pellet's complaint sounds in self-pity and resentment, but states no cause of action known to the law. <laughs> and I, uh, I had one I remember I, I didn't even intend to publish it because I... I used to always brag about being a good father, you know, about how every Sunday I used to take my children out for a drunk drive. And <laughs> on this, I, I wrote an opinion which began, appellate one Sunday morning while out for a drunk drive, you know, and newspapers called. Uh, I even, not too long back, I even had one that said, in law as in life, half measures avail us nothing. They, my colleagues say, where do you get those phrases? I don't know. They, you know, just bang, bang. Uh, we're listening to a multiple murder case one day, and the attorney was trying to get us not to feel too hostile toward his client, even though his client hadn't been entirely truthful when he had first been arrested. 
And I heard myself saying, or at least somebody who was seated where I was, saying, do not worry, Consular. We all understand that murder often leads to lying. <laughs> uh, 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 fortunately, I didn't follow it up and say, and if he keeps it up, he'll be drunk and enter in real trouble. Uh, I, now, now, these stories that we describe about the things that have happened, you know, this is that, don't make up your mind, newcomer or anybody else, what is going to be your story, because it is beyond comprehension, the things that happen to us. My story, you know, is a miracle in many ways. I, I've... Forty years ago, I was before the Supreme Court in California. They're trying to decide what to do with me. And now I've sat on the Supreme Court. Seven of us in our black robes, six deadly serious outwardly and inwardly, one serious outwardly and inwardly, thinking, oh, God, if they could see me at the club tonight. (laughs) Uh, uh, I try to take myself very lightly in my work seriously, and it seems to be the best way to go. But I don't know how things like that happen. Uh, I didn't ask for it. I just put one foot in front of the other, and it came as a total surprise. When the governor called, I remember saying, who is this really? (laughs) Some kind of a gag out there, huh, punk? Uh, I don't know how it can happen. My wife and I were over in England. My wife... uh, she went back to law school and passed the bar so she could criticize my decisions. Uh, this, by the way, you know, I was talking earlier about tragedies and how from them can come future progress and good. About 15 or 16 years ago, I don't know how long, maybe 17 now, I suddenly found myself a bachelor. And I, all of my older children had gone and I had one adolescent, about 13 or 14 boy, uh, and I suddenly found myself home taking care of him, and I, I thought no good can come of this but break my heart in two. But he and I survived. I'd like to tell you that as a result of our wonderful program, I was able to communicate with him one-to-one. But a man who says he talks to his pubescent son one-to-one lies about other things as well. You know, <laughs> of, of course you don't talk to him. As I said, it's a form of insanity. They're totally crazy. They get up, my boys are built like Greek gods. They get a pimple and their life is over. (laughs) The girls were just as bad, maybe even worse. They'd come home in tears and I'd say, what's wrong, honey? And they'd say, that boy, what did he do? He looked at me. What do you mean he looked at you? How did he look at you? He looked at me funny. What do you mean? Funny, aggressive, funny, lewd, funny, suggestive, funny, hostile, funny. What kind of funny? Funny, funny. (laughs) They're dying and they have no command of the English language. Words are unknown commodities. Oh, they have primordial grunts. They put to music and amplified it very loud. They play it in their room, but speech or communication is unknown. Of course I didn't talk to him. He lived in the front of the house. I lived in the rear. The only time I used to see him, I'd throw money out in the hall and wait. (laughs) But we both survived, and... uh, he went on through college, and he's about 30 years old now, got six years on the program. The only one who never saw me take a drink. Uh, and after a couple of years of bouncing around, a young lady came along uh, and entered our household where angels might have feared to tread. And uh, to me, she's very young and very, yeah, 27 years of sobriety. I don't monkey with newcomers, but uh, she does now, not when she came around. We only had 14 or so, but she seems to like me. And that's very good. She doesn't object to old age creeping on her at night. And that's good, too. (laughs) Uh, uh, But she and I were over in England one time studying the English judicial system as part of a tour. And we were, because I was the highest ranking of the officers, we were put in the courtroom with Lord Snaresbrook. Over in England, they make their high court officers lords, peers of the realm. They they wear scarlet robes. You know, they're called lords. I I mentioned it to the governor. Uh, (laughs) It's it's come to nothing so far. Uh, But he said to us, would you like to take the bench with me this afternoon? 
And we said, oh, that would be a high honor. And he said, well, good, you'll excuse me while I don my raiment. You may find it a trifle ostentatious. He put on, an understatement of the English, he put on his robe, and they're scarlet robes, the high court judges. They have ermine around the collar and around the cuffs, and they wear the long, full wig, not the little freshman dink the barristers wear. We couldn't believe it. We walked up on the bench. We looked like a moving Christmas tree. I mean, he was red and white, and I was just green with envy. (laughs) But it turned out that it was a criminal case, and in the dock about 10 feet from me sat the defendant, and he was charged with felonious assault. And to the very month, 30 years earlier, I had been in a dock in handcuffs charged with felonious assault. Maybe the very day, I don't know. Now, how can you go from the dock to the bench in an English courtroom sitting with the Lord, all the little black robe barristers with their funny wigs saying, put it to me, Lord. How can, how can that happen? You know, how, how can you go from the dock to the bench? You cannot. It's contrary to human experience, which is what you classify as a miracle. I don't know how you do it, but I know exactly how to go back. All I have to do is take the first drink. Back I go. You see, so... I need AA far more now than I did before. And because maybe it's age more than working the program, but life is so precious to me now. That I think maybe is the reason why I keep urging people to get it on. Do it. Do it. Whatever it is. We, even you young folks, you know, what? 50 years, everybody in the room will be dead. We rise like bubbles in champagne and we're gone. The twinkling of a celestial eye and it's all over. You know, if we don't do it now, it doesn't get done. If you want to do something noble, something good, if you want to strike a blow for mankind, you have to do it now. Because in the grave, in the tomb, nobody raises his hand for righteousness sake or any other sake. If you want to do something that's gentle and tender, loving, lewd, lurid, you have to do that now too. The poet said, the grave, it is a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace It has to be done right now. One of my, I know you young people don't believe that. You think you're immortal. One of my sons, when he was going through the testosterone rush, said to me, you know, Dad, if I should ever die. I said, what the hell do you mean if punk? It's not a hypothesis. It's reality. I'm looking at it. Which is true. I've given up the thought of suicide. How much time would I really save when you get right down to it? Another poet, I'm trying to find a rising note of hope to get off here with, and they'll do it. Another poet said, the bird of time has but a little way to flutter, and the bird is on the wing. My bird doesn't have too long to fly, and I don't want to miss a single one beat of those wings. And I hope some of you will stick around and we'll fly together. Thank you.